Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. Registration for the Numinous School only happens once a year in spring. I'll tell you how to find out more about that after the interview. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting with Alexandra Stain. Alexandra is a social psychologist, and she specializes in the study of cults and totalitarian systems. What is fascinating, and I think the most helpful aspect of her work, at least for the layperson like myself, is that Alexandra focuses on attachment as the framework for understanding how cults and charismatic leaders are so effective at exerting undue influence over the masses. Alexandra is located in England, and I connected with her online. So, Alexandra, what identities do you lead with? Um, I'm, I guess I consider myself a social psychologist, primarily, um, of, and I have specialized in the study of cults and totalitarianism, and particularly using attachment theory as a framework. Um, so I do lecturing, writing on that, um, some consulting, and I do some post-cult recovery counseling for people who are scratching their heads and wondering what happened to them and how to move forward. Uh, I have other identities, but that's the one that's relevant to our discussion today, I think. Great. Yeah, I read your book, Terror, Love and Brainwashing, Attachment in Cults and Totalitarian Systems, uh, after it was recommended to me by Matthew Remsky, who uh, was in an earlier episode, and we talked about uh, yoga cults and high demand communities when he mentioned your book as also a, someone who studies attachment and is trained in that in my work, I thought, oh wow, here's someone who's written on disorganized attachment specifically and not necessarily focusing on co-occurrences of like mental health or mood disorders, that sort of thing, but just writ large. And as someone who also sees a lot of disorganized attachment in our overcultures and our large systems, I thought, oh wow, this is so, relevant and salient. And I imagine you were writing this book before Trump came to power in the US. And you must have just been seeing the writing on the wall. Uh, so let's begin with just a brief overview of attachment. Can you just explain for the listeners who are very new to this concept, what's the difference between an organized attachment style and a disorganized attachment mm -hmm. style? Well, trying to be brief, um, you know, attachment theory was developed by a British child psychiatrist and psychologist, um, <clears throat> but it's now been used, an enormous amount of research has been done following his development of this theory. And it's an evolutionary based theory that says that um, the need for attachment is as critical a need, fundamental a need to human beings as that for shelter or food or um, sex or uh, so forth. And it's to, uh, it has the need to be attached to other people and particularly parents to babies 
is why we have is an evolved attribute that has um, ensured our survival as a species. That if babies and parents weren't attached to each other, the babies would have been lost in the forest or eaten up by wild animals or whatever. So it's those who were able to attach and form strong bonds were the ones who survived to carry on and reproduce their genes and so forth. So it's very much based in a evolutionary and scientific view of human relationships. Um, and then Bowlby and then later researchers came up with essentially four types of attachment, three of which are organized and one is disorganized. And the three organized ones are secure, which is the optimal one, which is when a relationship, so really these are the status of a relationship between a person and their close other. So a person who has a secure attachment to another, that would be one that's open, flexible, and responsive. And sometimes attachment goes a bit awry. And if you have an attachment figure who is inconsistently available, that can develop what we can call, I, um, there's different terminology depending on whether you're talking about children or adults. And because I'm interested primarily in adult relationships, I use the adult terminology. So preoccupied attachment is where um, you're overly kind of enmeshed or um, clinging on, it's a, uh, waiting for any kind of attachment that might be available, forthcoming from your attachment figure, but that isn't, you don't feel it's reliable. It's there sometimes, but not always. So it's actually adaptive to be clingy because then if you're always there, when there are bits of attachment coming your way, you're gonna be there to get it. So it's sort of adaptive, but also has problems, you know, clinginess has its problems. Um, and then um, dismissive attachment is when you've been consistently rejected or neglected. So you know that it's not useful to try and look for attachment because it's not gonna be forthcoming. So you become very ultra independent and you know, no, no, I don't need to be close to anyone. And that again is adaptive because you can kind of take care of yourself. If no one else is going to take care of you, you might as well, you know, be self-sufficient. But obviously that has its uh, problems as well in terms of being able to create intimacy with another. However, the thing about those three, and they're all organized forms of attachment, is they're predictable. You know, you know, so if you have one of those, someone who's trying to relate to you kind of knows that oh yeah, my friend, so-and-so, I love her to bits, but oh, she drives me mad. She always wants more attention than I can give her. She always has to go first. And, you know, I have to set boundaries with her. You know, you can know, you can kind of come up with a plan for coping with that relationship. So we all know people with all these types of attachment. The really problematic form is this form you mentioned, disorganized attachment which is overrepresented in prison and uh, clinical samples. So these are often people who really have difficulty um, in social relationships. And this is where your attachment figure, usually as a child, has been not necessarily unreliable, 
are not necessarily neg neglecting and not necessarily secure. What they have been is frightening or frightened, but let's not get too complicated and just keep the frightening one. So if you've had an abusive parent and if you've been isolated in that relationship, and that I think is an important point, if you haven't had a safe other who you could turn away from the abusive parent to another parent who was safe and who protected you, if you couldn't do that and you kind of were trapped in this frightening relationship, then you are in a situation that attachment theorists call fright without solution. And put simply, that's a state of relational trauma. And we can think about that in terms of relationships of domestic violence or you know, battering relationships, but it also can happen in other, all kinds of other relationships where you're trapped in a frightening relationship that you can't fight and you can't flee, so you essentially freeze. And my work has been to say that can be created, that relationship, by a perpetrator in a deliberate way, regardless of whether you are securely attached as a child or you know, a perfectly functional person. But if by various means you get into a situation that we'll, I'm sure, discuss further as we go along. A perpetrator who sort of either intuitively or consciously knows what they're doing can trap people in this isolating, frightening situation where you have no way out. And then you get two effects. You get an emotional effect, which is this, you become kind of preoccupied in that relationship because fear is the, uh, so to speak, the stimulus that sets off our attachment behavior. Fear or stress or threat. So, you know, if you're, you come home from, if you have a partner and you come home from work and it's been a hard day at the office, you know, you're very likely to say to your partner, oh, you know, let me put my feet up. Will you, you know, get me a cup of tea? You know, be nice to me today. <laughs> you know, you're gonna seek comfort from that stress and threat, if you, especially if you have a secure attachment to your significant other. Um, so stress makes us seek proximity to our attachment figures. But if you're isolated in this relationship with a frightening figure, you have no one else to seek comfort from, so you actually get closer to the frightening figure because you're biologically primed to seek comfort somewhere. And so you kind of, the only there available is this figure, who by the way is also saying, I'm gonna frighten you, but I also love you. And that's the very complex message of, that's why in the title of my book, it's terror and love. And I sort of want to put, wanted to put the word love in quotes, because it's not obviously <laughs> yeah. real love, mm -hmm. it's the, fake to quote trump fake news love you know it's yeah. fake love right you know but it's a, that appears to be your source of comfort so you emotionally start clinging to this unreliable source of comfort but you're in this you're not getting away from the trauma you're actually approaching the fear which is a maladaptive thing to do this is kind of crazy 
well, it's sort of literally crazy making. So when you're approaching the source of fear instead of getting away from it, which is the adaptive, sane, healthy thing to do, we know that in situate that just put you're in this trauma situation, and we know that in trauma, people dissociate. I mean, maybe not all people all the time, but in general, it can create dissociation in people. You're doing something that doesn't make sense for your survival needs. It's contrary to your survival and you can't fight, you can't flee and you go, duh, you dissociate deer in the headlights response. And that's mm -hmm. called dissociation. And we can talk about that more. Mm -hmm. Tell me how much you want to say. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely want to move into that next. But one area that I, I have noticed with um, several of my clients, especially those who come to me because they're trying to uh, figure out the attachment dynamics in their marriage or their close partnership, particularly when there's been a betrayal mm -hmm. and especially around infidelity, they can get sort of launched into a disorganized attachment field or vortex as we call it. And, and they can't even understand themselves that, that here's the person that's been their, their intimate other who has hurt them. And even they can't understand why they're still like wishing. So they're grieving the death of that trusted relationship and they're wishing for soothing and comfort. Mm -hmm. And then when they go back to that person, they're, you know, just dissolving into shame going, why am I going back mm -hmm. to this person? Because they can't make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I often, you know, this is, this is not the same as the necessarily as the battered relationship, but I, I just, wanted to kind of lift that up that that lots of us could just kind of have these life blips which maybe we'll talk about later but where something happens and suddenly the the very person that was meant to be your secure base that rug has been torn under and you can't understand why it's so difficult to extract yourself from that and so everybody can experience a disorganized attachment even if you didn't grow up with an abusive parent is that right well i'm certainly not <laughs> an expert in your field about um, that but that makes sense to me what you're saying that you know your security has been yanked away yet it's still your security um, and that's very confusing and disorganization you know the essence is it's very confusing you don't mm -hmm. know you're going to get comfort but then you're trying to escape that the comforting figure because they're actually not comforting they're frightening so that's where you get this inability to work it out. And, you know, in a normal, relatively healthy relationship, I know, you know, we talk about repairing communication, that being a kind of key skill to maintain a relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, if you don't understand, yeah, what's happening, it's very difficult to repair. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of cult recovery, you know, the repair that we're trying to do is to um, understand, well, this gets kind of complicated, but you know, when you're in a cult, you're basically in a de deceptive system that is not what it is telling you. The reality is not what the discourse is that's coming from the cult about what it is. Mm -hmm. And in fact, your reality in that dissociation that you're experiencing 
the cult comes in to that kind of gap in your brain between your thinking and your feeling brain and says, well, this is, don't worry if you can't work it out, we'll tell you what's happening. Right. And, so let's talk about yeah. that cognitive dissonance around the disorganized attachment vortex. So can you just define dissociation a little bit for folks who yeah. get it but aren't quite sure and, and, and the role that it plays in opening the door for the uh, high demand community or the totalitarian system to gain a foothold in your psyche? Um, so I think it helps to have a very, I have a, <laughs> I'm no neuroscientist, I have a very basic understanding of the brain, but we have these three regions of the brain, and this is, you kind of need to understand this, the brain stem that controls very basic functions like heartbeat and so forth, then the kind of middle region, which is the limbic region that's dealing with your emotions and kind of your sensory inputs and some parts of memory, sort of your, quote, emotional memory in shorthand. And then we have the frontal cortex, which is the language-based, logic-based part of your brain, the higher order thinking. Now, in trauma, there's in, in trauma studies, trauma theorists have done you know, these wonderful uh, brain scans where they can see what's happening when people are reliving traumas. And one thing they found is that the there's a, a piece um, called the orbital frontal cortex that links the limbic region with the higher order frontal cortex. And its job is, so, is to decide if something you've experienced that's come through your senses, because we are in the world through our senses, and those, through our senses we then have feelings and emotions in the midbrain. And your orbital frontal cortex is the connection between your, your midbrain and your higher order thinking it's what's called the if i can remember the master regulator of the um emotional brain or the thinking part of the emotional brain and it decides okay i'm something's come through my senses i'm feeling nervous say do i need to think more about what's causing me to feel nervous or is this just something i can just carry on with and I don't really have to do that extra cognitive work in my higher order brain. So in trauma, that bit turns off. So dissociation is really kind of cutting the, the in terms of that, the, the relationship or the instance that's causing the trauma. It's not global, it's about what's causing the trauma is cutting that connection between your feelings and your thinking, put simply. So dissociation means you can't think clearly about your feelings, your experience of the world. Now, sometimes we like to dissociate. I've just been in the hills of Shropshire and I was very happy not to think about how beautiful the green hills were and the bare oak trees with all their wonderful patterned branches. You know, you look at the ocean or you listen to beautiful music. You're not necessarily, you might be, but you may be letting go of your higher order thinking. And that is a lovely, pleasant thing. And obviously I'm not a spiritual person, but I believe that much spiritual experience is a dissociative experience. So in itself, dissociation is not bad. What's bad is if you can't think about your feelings, 
when you're in a dangerous situation and when someone else is so to speak colonizing your thinking for their own benefit that's the problem mm -hmm. so now the cult can come in and say all right you're dissociated you can't think about what you're experiencing we're going to think about it for you and tell you it's okay to kill the jews and send them off to concentration camps that's all mm -hmm. right right i'm thinking here when you're talking about that pleasant feeling of of just sort of letting go into the dissociative experience i've had this experience in large crowds when i've been at um very stimulating sort of events right i'm thinking of like years ago i went to see tony robbins and i remember thinking oh god i'm not much of a rah-rah you know let's do this kind of person but he you know that the crowd is really into it they warm you up and before he comes on stage they played this sound of a heartbeat oh. really loud getting faster and faster to this really upbeat music and you know halfway through i mean i had tennis elbow from how much fist pumping i was doing i could like you just can't help it you're getting swept up and and so i wonder if you can talk a little bit about the difference between central root processing and peripheral root not not in a deep neuroscientific way but just how there are certain techniques that that we see a lot in personal improvement multi-level marketing like large um in these almost capitalistic type, type situations where you get this relief at not having to think about your dissonance anymore <laughs> so you just kind of are like oh i don't have to think about it they have these like catchy phrases that that I can just let go and hold on to even though this doesn't feel good to me and I even came in here knowing this doesn't this feels very high pressure tactic to me and yet here I am like hooting and jumping up and down to the rhythm of the heartbeat can you can you describe how you how you would explain that from a disorganized or like totality well, yeah these are well let me go back to your thing about central root versus peripheral root. So this is a basic concept in social psychology. If anyone takes a social psychology class, I hope they would learn this. So this is kind of a version of what I was saying, but it's a little different. So central root processing is when you have the time, ability, and uh, other resources to really con concentrate and think through something. So if you're making a decision, you know, should I, whatever, take this job or when you're studying something you know that you're hopefully again that's using your higher order thinking that frontal cortex but you need some space and time in order to be able to do that and information the right kind of information so it, that's suitable and useful for certain kinds of activities you know like doing a phd you have to get access to a lot of that central root processing Peripheral root processing, we're using all the time every day. And it's also important. So it's not like one is better than the other. They have different functions. You know, if I'm crossing the street, I'm not thinking about each car that's going by in that kind of way. It's more of an instinctive thing, right? Something big's barreling towards me, I'm gonna not cross the road. You're you're looking at the peripheral characteristics. Um Actually, that's not a super good example, but it is more using that uh, quick functioning of the brain. So there's other, like there's a book by Kahneman, uh, 
Oh, thinking fast and slow. Yeah, he's really, there's just a number of different um, explain, uh, languages that people talk about the same thing. We have this careful, slow, considered part of the brain and this more instinctive, quick part of the brain that just makes rapid assessments or even non-assessments, because otherwise there's too much, we couldn't think carefully about everything, we'd go crazy. Um, so, you know, peripheral root processing is, is a normal and okay part of life. However, when people are deliberately using it in a deceptive manner to distract us from thinking about, perhaps we should be looking at the central characteristics of something, not just whether they're flashy and they look good. So, you know, Tony Robbins looks good. He looks powerful. You know, he's got that haircut, you know. So if you are only going to evaluate him on these, his peripheral, he's tall, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, he has this booming voice. You know, you would go, whoa, this guy knows what he's talking about. You know, so peripherally by these traits that we don't have to take much time to think about yeah i'll walk over those hot coals you know but the central route would be saying hey maybe i should do my homework i'm going to get on the computer and google you know has anyone had negative experiences with him you know and i'm going to study a little bit before i hand over too much money right that's so when people are using deceptive practices they're going to use a lot of things to prevent you having the resources, the time, space, information to do that careful thinking. So the heartbeat stuff, I mean, that's just classic. You get that in a lot of different um, cultic. There's, I think there's a, there's a very good, very old film. I think it's Canadian called Captive Minds, Hypnosis and Beyond where they've got one scene with a sort of Robbins-like character and they're using the speeding up heartbeat. Of course, what a speeding up heartbeat does is it makes us feel stressed, right? So that, and it's sort of emotional overload. So you haven't got the space, time, et cetera, to be thinking carefully. You're just going to be swept along. In your book, you talk about some of these techniques like thought stopping jargon and loaded language mm -hmm. and repetition and um, and so much of that reminded me of multi-level marketing mm -hmm. you know whether it was from Amway to today we see this you know with with essential oils or different kinds of superfoods uh, would you say multi-level marketing companies are cult-like? I'm not I mean, one thing I want to say is they may not all be. So, you know, it's like a lot of people say to me, well, isn't Christianity or Catholicism a cult? And I say, no. Are there Christian cults? Yes. Are there Catholic cults? Yes. So there may be okay multi-level marketing schemes. I'm not sure. But, you know, they don't. I'm sure that. You seem doubtful. I'm going to I'm say. Doubt, but, you know, I like to. I don't want to just have these too many sweeping statements, you know. Mm -hmm. However, I have definitely seen cases where it's been very clear that they are using, like you say, this loaded language, a jargon, you know, um, uh, I can't think of any examples right now, but you know, how to, you know, really fulfill your dreams and 
I just saw something. Your your friends and family become some kind of acronym in one one of these. You know, FAF. Your FAFs. So it's sort of almost objectifying your most loved ones because all they are is becoming a sales opportunity for you, not your loved ones, right? So mm -hmm. it's the kind of jargon that distances you from your real relationships. These are your FAFs or whatever that acronym is. Um, so that would be one example. So you have a load of jargon. And also that jargon, this isn't really about peripheral root processing, but it separates you from the others who aren't in the group. Because now you can't really have a conversation with someone who isn't using that jargon. Mm -hmm. um, but also, yeah, the repetition that you get a lot of um, uh, literature and trainings where it all sounds good. The words sound good. Oh, you're going to be empowered. You're going to be this. You're going to be that. But if you actually try to pick it apart, what are they actually saying? Sometimes you can't even understand it. It's just mm -hmm. like, and then people think that's because they're stupid that they can't understand it. No, it's not because you're stupid. Normal people should be able to understand normal training materials. If it's like the circular complex stuff or ultimately, ultimately more the Trump style, real simple, you know, build the wall, build the wall. We need the wall, the immigrants, the drugs. Again, yeah. not really saying anything. Yeah. It's like, very two legs good, four legs bad. Oh, totally. totally yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. a marvelous thing which I use in my classes is um, the, there's an appendix to Orwell's 1984 called Newspeak. And it's, he just lays out the properties of this kind of talk. And I recommend your listeners to go have another read of 1984 but and that appendix because it really... Yeah, you know, this it's it's very easy for us when we're isolated and we don't have someone else saying, by the way, that's bullshit, you know, and our kind of validator people in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I, I would imagine if you hear yourself saying, well, you just don't understand, you just don't get it, but you can't explain it to them in a way that they can exactly. understand, you exactly. may have been brainwashed. Right. <laughs> and if they say classically also don't worry you know struggle with the practice well remsky's new book practice and all is coming that's perfect you know in my group which was a political group it was like struggle with the practice you know totally different types of experiences but both saying basically you're not developed enough yet to really understand but if you carry on well, no, mm -hmm. I should be able to know what's coming next and understand why I'm doing the next thing. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so that is a huge warning sign. This, because you're being asked to suspend disbelief. In other words, not think about the experience. That's, it's a kind of dissociative technique. But you don't need to do this thinking right now. We're the ones who are going to do this thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, and in your book, you have so many brilliant and illuminating examples. So I would strongly encourage if people want to get a better sense of this about, you know, the, the, the heavenly language, or there were just like many different ways that people cloaked their jargon as though it isn't brainwashing. So what I'd like to do now though, is talk about the myth of, of vulnerability, that there are certain kinds of people 
who are more susceptible mm -hmm. to uh, finding themselves in a cult. And, and we, whether it's you know, overtly or covertly, we sort of believe that they have a, a personality weakness or a character flaw. What did your research show about that? Well, I think not just my research, by the way, but much research, um, including a lot of the um, more recent research about people who are radicalized into violent extremist groups. Um, but generally, what we're finding and what I found in my own particular research is there were a range of people. So I, I looked at people who had been in a cult who were ex-members. You can't, it's very difficult to research current cult members because they won't talk to you. Um, and if they do, you're going to get the canned story of the cult story. You won't get their own story. Um, but you kind of get a range of people. You interestingly, generally, these kind of groups don't recruit psychopaths and sadists and people like that, or people who have severe mental health problems because they want productive, useful people. And also a sadist or a psychopath, well, that's the person at the top of the cult. You don't want to recruit a, <laughs> a potential competitor. And also you can't control those kind of people. So you can control, you know, most normal people we kind of need to be able to be quote controlled. Like if you have a job, I mean, to be honest, I've never been good at having a job. That's why I'm an independent consultant and scholar. You know, I don't do well being controlled. So really they shouldn't have recruited me though they did. And though I was controlled, I digress. <laughs> but you know, society works because we go to work and we have a manager or we go to school and we, you know, even if we don't like the teacher, we more or less behave you know that's just normal human behavior that's not people looking to be dominated that's just normal social structures so it's 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 just that cults can take advantage of that that we behave properly you know we don't run out of something going you're full of crap you know um we're going to sit till the end of the meeting before we leave and that might be too late but going back to the myth of vulnerability, what we have found, and Margaret Singer, an earlier scholar in this, she talked about there's the actual vulnerability is when people are in a normal life blip. So it's a situational vulnerability. And it doesn't even have to be that, by the way. So, but what I mean by that is, you know, you've moved to a different town, you've gone to university or you've left university, you've had a breakup in a relationship, any kind of normal life transition, maybe even like your yoga class shut down, so you're looking for a new yoga class. You know, anything that in a way gets you to something where a perpetrator might be organizing and recruiting. Um, you know, if we didn't do anything new, we may not run into these people, right? Mm -hmm. And if you go to the new yoga class, you might be lucky and find a nice yoga class. You might be unlucky and emerge 10 years later, you know, dealing with your PTSD. So mm -hmm. there's a kind of a who you're running into. Are you running into a perpetrator? Um, and of course, there are people who are born into these groups. Many, many, many. They're being very active right now, this generation. Um, Ex-Jehovah's Witnesses are coming out talking about their experiences. Ex-ultra-Orthodox Jews 
coming out and saying this is cult-like. Um, Ex-Mormons and uh, the fund, you know, there's a whole generation now found a voice and are being active and saying, you can say what you like, but I didn't choose this. I was born into this. Mm -hmm. uh, it, in yeah. your book, you talk about recruitment as a coordinated program of persuasion and deception. And one of the excellent quotes that um, Matthew first lifted up from your book is that people don't join cults. Right. They delay leaving groups that have deceived them. So can you talk a bit about that coordinated approach? In your book, you highlight engulfment, isolation, propaganda, and indoctrination. What, what would you like to say well, about that? First of all, I want to give credit. It's, that's really Margaret Singer's phrase, and I think it's a very good one, a coordinated program of persuasion. So whether they're doing it intuitively or kind of more consciously, you are being acted upon as an object. Um, and I have, I guess, uh, the kind of shortest formula I've come up with is if you want to you know, get someone under your control, this is what you have to do. <laughs> You isolate a person from any other safe, safe attachments or any safe attachments. So that means isolating them from former friends and family, even in the group, isolating them. They can't really trust the others in the group fully and isolating them from their own internal ability to think about what's happening. You engulf them in your system, so that becomes the only, like we talked before, the only safe, perceived safe haven. Um, then you create chronic stress. And this is going to cause the person to come seek comfort from the group and then dissociate and so forth. In terms of the propaganda and indoctrination, propaganda and this is really from Hannah Arendt's fantastic work, The Origins of Totalitarianism. She talked about propaganda as being kind of the outward facing um, words and discourse, discourse of the group or organization or state, whatever it is. So if I'm trying to recruit you to Scientology, I'm not going to tell you right away about the fact that you are not going to be able to see your family for years about uh, that your body is inhabited by these little creatures that came out of a volcano, whenever it was. Um, I'm going to start by saying, come and take a personality test. Oh, look, you're a bit depressed. You're a bit anxious. We have programs that can help you develop. So that's propaganda. It faces outwards to people not in the group. And it has to have one foot in reality. Otherwise, the people outside would say, you're crazy. I don't believe in aliens, you know. But do I believe in, I'm a little anxious and depressed and I could use some help? Sure, right? So that's, but it's lies, you know. So um, I'm just trying to think of a Trump connection. Well, Trump just does it all, all at once. But... <laughs> But, you know, his constant, well, some of his stuff can appeal, as we could see by the elections, to people outside. Like, you know, the people aren't being treated right, you know, and we should, I think he gave some supposed tax relief 
to the middle classes. You know, yeah, that, all the make America great again stuff about yeah, like this the is, proud nation know, of hard workers. Yeah. People can sign up to that. You know, they're not going for totalitarianism. They're just going for things that seem reasonable. So that's kind of propaganda. Indoctrination is when you're more inside. They've got you, recruited you through this deceptive propaganda. Now you're inside. Now they can start, once you're kind of isolated from reality and from anyone who might validate reality, now everyone around you is saying, and this is kind of a, can be a gradual thing. Now you're stepping into a complete fiction, as Hannah Arendt calls it. And I mean, again, Trump was doing, he kind of does this too, you know, with like the size of the inauguration crowd. You know, everyone could see what it was, but he just makes this fiction out of it. Um, again, Orwell talks about this. But if you're in a, smaller group um you just start becoming insulated from the outside world and this indoctrination that everything out there is bad um you know we've got all the answers where and this kind of constant uh repetition of this stuff till you're just kind of you can't think straight mm -hmm. and again that's you were talking earlier repetition is important um it's a single truth you're not getting any other points of view you're only getting this one message and by the way don't look anywhere else for any truth because we have all the truth mm -hmm. and i call this whole thing the total ideology so it's be very frightened of any person or group who says they and only they have the answers to everything for all time and you don't need any other sources, whether it's for your health care or studying geography <laughs> or history. We know it all. Mm -hmm. And that is a dangerous place to be. And in your book, one thing that stood out to me is something that doesn't get talked about a lot is in that engulfment, they keep you so goddamn busy. It's like yeah. we we can address every single part of your life and these new building blocks keep coming in. Oh, well, you should go to this group for for this part of your life and you should be taking that for that part of your life. And then and then you're just exhausted. So, for yeah. instance, in yoga, it's like, oh, well, not only are you teaching or, you know, you're going through training, you're doing your own practice. You have to do some yoga, um, sorry, karma yoga. You have to give back to the community. You also need to attend this retreat. You also, we can help you with this. And so you're so exhausted to the point where probably you're injured. Well, guess what? We can, if you keep practicing, so even though you got injured because you're exhausted from all this, if you keep practicing, that's the solution to the thing. Like, it's just crazy making. So well, that engulfment, you talk about being in the political cult of just like, you can't, you're just falling into bed at night. So of right. course you're associated and the indoctrination just kind of is how you keep going. Am I, am I getting you? Oh, absolutely. And again, that's that um, peripheral versus central root processing. You said you don't have the resources to think critically and carefully you know and you know sleep deprivation you know i'm sure you're told in your in these yoga cults as in my political cult if you're really developed you only need three or four hours sleep a night and by the way the master only gets two hours so you know it's just because you're not developed enough well that's bullshit 
you know, we, we know scientifically, and, and that's, it's very relevant to the neuroscience because we, we process and integrate the different parts of our brain when we have quality sleep. And if we don't, we dissociate, right? So dissociation is shored up, not just relationally in the way I described with Fright Without Solution, but also sleep deprivation, exhaustion, the things like the heartbeat things, <laughs> you know, there's loud sounds going on and on, you know, there's many ways to skin the cat. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do, I emphasize the relational because I think that's not been emphasized enough up till now. Mm -hmm. um, there are various tools. So there's sort of, the way I understood it in your book, you kind of talk about these three factors that, that would render the average person vulnerable. First, there's the attachment deficit coupled with the cognitive deficit and then there's the deployment. You're just, you're easier to deploy. And I, I thought a lot about, well, particularly in Canada, there's, um, we have a, a legacy of residential schools. And now that survivors come forward, people are saying things like, well, that was so long ago, or if it was so bad, why didn't you come out sooner? And they don't realize that when you have been indoctrinated, you can then be deployed and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, even though it's against your your own uh, self-interest, you just it's it's so part of your being that that you could be deployed like for a long time. It's very hard to extricate yourself from this because you've been brainwashed. So in the case of residential schools, you come to believe an, an indigenous person might come to believe that they are bad and they are inferior and they are second class and they do you know, their people are drunks and alcoholics because look around. And so, so when they start to become um, empowered, there's almost this, like, it's like the rest of the culture is also sort of indoctrinated because we keep saying like, well, it's because you're flawed or weak. And so, so I just, I find it interesting. There's this like almost unresolvable dissonance because no sooner did they become self-aware and able to extricate themselves, but then they step into a culture like whiteness, white supremacy, that is, that is also crazy making and saying somehow you deserved that. Um, yeah, so I was just, I was wondering if you ever uh, look around at the world and see, see that same kind of um, thinking, that same kind of sense that we blame the victim for these things, that that how could they have possibly come to, to any other conclusion than to be traumatized? Well, I think we constantly do this. Um, you know, I mean, in terms of domestic violence, you know, 40 years ago, there were all these stereotypes about who was the victim of domestic violence. You know, it was some drunken Irish couple down the street falling out of the pub at 11 o'clock if you're in England, you know, and now we know because there's been a tremendous amount of activism over decades by women's, the women's movement initially, and then broadening out now into the mainstream that has explained some of the exact similar dynamics that I'm talking about as regards cults and saying, no, these women got trapped and they're of all classes and all situations and they don't go in asking to be with an abusive man. So I think we have, at least in the UK, I think fairly globally now, 
raised awareness about these dynamics and that has helped people start to unravel these stereotypes. Um, but it's been the process of a long struggle to get there. And part of that struggle has been women speaking out and being willing to say, this is what, tell their stories. And I think we're seeing that in the cult world now is, you know, this started, you know, when I started in uh, kind of after I got out of the cult and started in this field, you know, there weren't that many people telling their stories. There weren't that many memoirs. It was at a much lower level. Now we've still got a long, long, long way to go, but it is coming in, you know, you're interviewing me, <laughs> you know, I'm getting, I'm getting a lot of interviews right now, not because I'm some special person, but because this is a story now that people are trying to understand, sometimes poorly, but sometimes better. So I think these things take a long time for people to understand what actually happened and to unpick the propaganda and the stereotypes around it. Um, I did want to add something to what we were talking about right before about. Um, I can't quite remember what it was, but I think this is an important point, particularly in prevention efforts around, say, radicalization and extremism. There's a lot of talk about let's teach children or university students or whoever it is critical thinking, that it's all about teaching people critical thinking. I want to reframe that and say it's all about teaching people what it looks like when someone disables your critical thinking. Because I was a critical thinker, and I would say most people were more or less critical thinkers, at least somewhat. And it's, yes, it's great to teach people critical thinking, but it's absolutely valueless. <laughs> I shouldn't say it's absolutely valueless. It's not gonna protect them from recruitment if they don't understand these mechanisms of isolation, engulfment, stress, propaganda, indoctrination, et cetera, et cetera, that that is gonna disable their critical thinking. You know, and when I finally had some support and some other things that helped me get out of the cult I was in, my critical thinking about the group and my relationship to it came back in a flash. It was quite an extraordinary moment in a way because I had this support, I had another safe place to turn. And I was like, this group is fucked up. And oh my God. And I, it was all just falling into place. And now it took me years to really get it all in place, but I could critique it immediately. Whereas when you're in this brainwashed state, it's, to critique it is to approach, this is the disorganization again, is to approach the phenomena, the cult, which is your source of safety, but it's also the source of fear. It's too frightening. And I mean that not in a conscious way, like you can't say I'm frightened to critique it. It's a physiological state of your cortisols ramping up. So you just have this in fact, it's a nameless fear. You couldn't say that you were frightened, what you were frightened of. You couldn't even say you were frightened. You are just having a physiological fear response. And that's the bit in a way that's almost the key to this whole thing is that the brainwasher knows how to get people into that chronic terror as state without their ability to name what 
what it is or what's causing that. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an important point. It's so important. And I'm just getting tons of full body yeses. You just, you speak my mind and I'm just, I'm so in love with your book and your work. And I'm just so honored that you're on the show right now and speaking Thank all this. You. It's so um, affirming and validating. And, um, and, and I didn't want to give too much platform to the perpetrators and abusers, but I do want to talk about some of their techniques. And one that stood out to me as something that I see a lot, again, in, in a lot of spirituality circles and um, uh, multi-level marketing, uh, but also there's a phenomenon, which I know isn't your area of expertise, but uh, it's called women's gifting circles. Mm -hmm. And really it's a pyramid scheme. Women, you know, pay $5,000, then it's a gift to the woman, at the, you know, who's the hostess of the circle. But, and eventually you're going to recruit more people in. And uh, it really swept um, North America, but particularly the West Coast in the last uh, sort of but I mean, this is what that we were doing in grade school. You know, if you gave everyone a sixpence and then they would give you a sixpence. I mean, I remember yeah, the from grade yeah. school, the exact same thing. Anyway, exactly. But they're cloaking yeah. it in jargon of no, no, it's not a pyramid. It's not a pyramid. It's a circle. And there's no leader. You're the hostess. And one of the interesting things about these gifting circles is the idea that uh, you're the hostess only, you know, for a certain amount of time, but then you rotate to, you know, the person who's the welcome person or, or sometimes they describe it as a, as a meal. You're the appetizer person. And once you finally get to dessert, you get your $40,000. But, but then you disappear from that circle and someone else becomes the, the, the hostess. Uh, and so in your book, you spend a good deal of time explaining sort of the onion-like structure of power in high demand communities, in cults. And, and one notion that stood out to me was about replaceable others. And, and it related to how you can feel alone in a really tight-knit community because of this this strategic replaceable others. Can you talk about that concept and what it is and what purpose it serves for the cult leader? I, I can. I'm, I can't talk about your example because <laughs> I don't know enough about it. So, but the way I talk about it in my book is that because a cult leader has to prevent any competing attachments forming, and especially any safe attachment or secure attachment or let's put or organized attachments forming, they have to um, constantly attack any relationships that might develop to be close relationships, whether with your friend or your spouse or your children. So there's all you could see that in the indoctrinating ideology. You know, you shall let go of all attachments right? That's the whole spiritual thing, isn't it? You know, the Buddhist, you shall have no attachments. Maybe if you're going to be a monk, that's fine. If you know that you're never going to see your family again, but this is deceit, deceitful because you're not told that I'm going in. So you become this isolated atom within the system. And you know, an example, in one of my interviews, I would ask people to tell me about their close friends while they were in the group or their close others and how many they had. And I would write the initial of each. I was doing, trying to track relationships through their experience. 
And one or two people would say, well, one person in particular said, close friends? Well, everyone was my close friend. I had 500 close friends. Well, as we know from Facebook, <laughs> 500 friends does not mean 500 close friends. You can't, people can't have 500 close friends, right? We have whatever the number is, seven or if we're lucky or 11 or, you know, it's a small number. So the group has made that closeness kind of irrelevant. So, and you have these strange hybrid relationships where you're close because you're all in this thing together and you're all, you know, parroting the same jargon and you all supposedly have the same goal of liberation or spiritual awareness, attainment. And you're all maybe, you might be living together, you're all working really hard together and being stressed out together. So there is a kind of closeness, but it's not a real closeness because if you were to develop a real closeness, that's going to be split up by the group quick, sharpish. <laughs> and you're going to be told, you know, that's not important and that's holding back mm -hmm. your development. So, in that, I guess that's, and then a scholar called Ben Zablocki talked about this as people in cults are replaceable others rather than, hey, this is my husband. This is my best friend. No, this is, and in fact, this relates directly to the concept of shunning. So, you know, if you are bad enough, you, or you'll get expelled or you leave the group, we kind of know when a cult's a cult, right? Because the people in the cult, your parents, your husband, your children, will not be allowed to speak to you again. Mm -hmm. So you are replaceable. You're a nobody. Right. Mm -hmm. This I'm going to say something kind of stingy for some of our listeners. So I just I'm putting this out here. Everybody just like feel your feet, feel your seat. This is where polyamory comes up for me with cults, because polyamory is yeah. an attachment shit yeah. show. It is so exhausting. Talk about engulfment, but also just the 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 replaceable other concept that that you just can't even like focus you can't bring your full presence or your resources because you have to be available also to all of these others so we see you know um uh communities quote-unquote intentional communities like tamara in portugal and they have their love school and all of that and ultimately i'm like okay if this is about polyamory i have to tell you you're going to be fucking exhausted and it's going to be very uh disorganizing from an attachment perspective so i'm i can never really square polyamory and and then and then i often get to the point where it's like well because you just don't get it and then i think aha <laughs> i think we're getting somewhere now yeah. now i i do want to talk about resistance because in your book you you, you know the whole last but can i briefly oh, sure, talk sorry. about that because i think that's a really important point that you're bringing up and mm -hmm. again i want to say you know i'm sure there are some polyamorous relationships that I might not want to be in, but are probably just their own doing their whatever, you know, I'm just reading Simone de Beauvoir, you know, her and Sartre, you know, they were bonking around different people, you know, so I'm not saying that, you know, everyone has to be monogamous, but what I would like to say is cultic groups predictably control sexuality and reproduction and how they control sexuality can vary 
So I don't want people to think all cultic groups force you to be polyamorous, though we know that, for instance, the children of God did. They also forced pedophilia, by the way. Um, and many, anyway, so some will enforce polyamory. Some, like Heaven's Gate, will enforce celibacy to the point where they castrated some of the men. Some, like in my group, will enforce arranged marriages. And then maybe splitting you up if they think you're getting too close or if one leaves. They definitely split you up if one leaves. Um, uh, the um, Iranian group, the Mujahideen Kalk, had all their members divorce. All their members. All of a sudden, there was this kind of program you all have to divorce. And it's, they said, not only divorce but in your heart divorce the person so you had to actually cut off all your loving feelings so all cults do this in some form or another but i want to get across it they're creative they do it in a variety of ways but i totally agree that polyamory in can be a very dangerous sign of someone's controlling your sexuality and they're doing it so that you don't have a secure relationship that is going to be a safe place through which you can escape the frightening relationship of the disorganizing leader or group. So mm -hmm. And the cognitive dissonance is that they're doing it under the guise of this is liberation. Absolutely. This, yeah. yeah. Well, it's good for you in some way or whatever. Yeah. You know, this is yeah you're so spiritual yeah. or political or whatever it is or better for mm -hmm. your yoga practice, you know, whatever, you know, they all have their own way, but you can, so, you know, you can look at the discourse and say, are they justifying interfering with your close relationships? Watch mm -hmm. out. Yeah. Looking Get, for the patterns. Find another yoga cl class to go to. Don't go to that. Not that yeah. you'll know that right away. You'll know that once you get further in, they'll start. Mm -hmm. um, so, so a yeah. quote from your book is, uh, the key to resistance is the ability to maintain or develop trusting relationships in order to preserve an integration of thinking and feeling, along with the ability to find ways to act independently and to avoid enmeshment and identification with the oppressive system. So you also state that you believe education about the nature of high demand groups and totalitarian regimes is a public health issue. Mm -hmm. We talked about Trumpism, we're talking about Brexit, we're talking about the radicalization of youth. Um, so what do you think, you know, briefly overview, what do you think an open society should do to resist totalitarianism? By the way, I, I'm not gonna put Brexit in here. I think there's a different mm -hmm. thing going on. It is parallel, but we're not yet. I mean, Trump is clearly a totalitarian leader, wannabe, who's already of a small group. And he, but I think Brexit's got some other things going on. So I don't like to mush my categories too, too much. Thanks. Um, <laughs> we, yeah, Theresa May is not a totalitarian leader. She wouldn't be good at it. She lacks the, <laughs> the charisma. Um, <laughs> bigly, as Trump would say. Um, but you're asking what, as a society, we should do. Um, I mean, you know, in an ideal world, we would have societies that, you know, keep people supported and safe in all kinds of ways, and we would have nice 
communities where people feel integrated and you know if they go to a class they know who's teaching or whatever you know and we're not creating psychopaths by you know all kinds of deprivation and this and that so you know i think all the normal things we think make a good society apply however i also think education is key because we don't have this wonderful society we have societies that are fragmenting rapidly we're under a lot of stress um you know maybe that's always been the case but we certainly are now so um i think educating people about the warning signs of predatory uh, uh perpetrators of this type is very important and educating us about we though everyone is vulnerable and can get involved at any time through perfectly benign efforts on their part um what to look out for um you know look out for someone who starts trying to isolate you who says they've got all the answers um so on you know who's engulfing you all these things and i would like to see people at all levels of society you know starting at age and age appropriate ways get education in a way about on the one hand about basic social psychological knowledge that we have about per persuasion and influence and discrimination and prejudice and things that are the basic curriculum of social psychology about human behavior in groups you know this is really important stuff it was developed after world war ii as part of dealing with how did the holocaust happen how can we prevent it and unfortunately that knowledge has gone out of fashion and it's really hard to find now and i think that should be taught routinely and in addition some of the things we've talked about these some of these additional mechanisms of you know beware of people who are trying to dissociate you and so forth and the structure of these totalitarian um groups you know in germany i think that is one country like when i have students from germany they often know quite a bit of this already because that country did have to take seriously how it was going to bring up its next generations i don't know how well that's continuing now but i think you know there has been much more of that and there's very very little of that in certainly in the uk and the us um and i think you know now we are starting to see more public health education about issues of consent you know with the hash i mean before hashtag me too but you know now we'll get more of it because of that um you know date rape dating violence you know young people are now being taught you know a, what an abusive boyfriend might look like so we are seeing progress in that now i'd like us to see to connect that to it may not be your boyfriend it may be that running group you've just joined or whatever you know that church around the corner um let's connect it to these other forms of the same type of thing and what are these common mechanisms of getting control over people so they can be deployed against their own survival interests for the interests of the perpetrator and i think it would help you know on a lot of levels it would help people understand what is deceptive advertising as well as how not to get in a cult 
you know, when is their central root processing being uh, distracted when they need to keep it intact? Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I sort of, in a way, I'm shocked that we're not doing this because it seems so basic to me. Mm -hmm. We should teach it the same way we teach people to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom, you know, mm -hmm. cover their mm -hmm. mouth when they cough in public, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's basic health and safety. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, we are lacking, you know, we have to start small and we have to start with training the trainers. So I believe it actually has to start in the universities so that we can develop a generation of people who are really qualified to now teach teachers. We need to be teaching medical professionals, social workers. You know, right now, social workers often, and, you know, social workers do the work of angels. You know, I have a great respect for them. But, you know, they may not go into a closed church because, well, that's religious and we don't mess with their religious rituals. Well, hang on a minute, what's happening to the children in that group? Please knock on that door, don't wait for permission, go find out if you know those kids or whatever are being abused because there are high instances of child abuse and neglect in these groups. So there needs to be a culture shift to be aware that you can't just take, well, we're a spiritual group or we're whatever, you have to dig in. And also, these groups are secret. They have these layers of secrecy. So you're not going to know if it's okay until you kind of dig in and get inside that. And it's, I mean, it's, a, it's complex, but I think we can do it and we need to do it and take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Just in closing, you know, I know, I'm sure I can't even imagine. Uh, how you recovered from the experience of leaving a, a cult, a political cult, a high demand community. Um, you know, the residual emotions of that must have been very persistent for a long time. I'm curious if you would share with us, how do you personally cope with the grief and the rage that you might feel from that experience? Well, for me, it was a long time ago now. You know, I left in 1991, so that's... Um, 28 years ago, you know, um, I think if I think back to that time, I think writing my book was a huge thing, my first book, because that was a way for me to witness what had happened, um, to try to turn what the ugliness of what had happened to me outward to help, try to help others. So that in a way made it something that I could make valuable as opposed to this just horrible experience. Um, talking to other people who'd experienced the same thing was huge, um, really huge. Um, finding this analysis so that I could make sense of it, uh, creating what we call a coherent narrative. So instead of the narrative of the group, it's like, no, this is what happened. This is what happened, not what they said happened. Um, yeah, a lot of, I don't know, I wrote poems, you know, for me, a lot of writing and talking, but, you know, this is, we, we try to recommend this for recovery for people because, because of that dissociation and you've got the cult narrative, we need to engage our language part of our brain, that higher order thinking to review that experience that has been un, 
metabolized, it's still being interpreted with the cult words. We have to kind of reclaim, go back through our own experience, put language to it. And that, re that actually takes away the traumatic memory. It reintegrates the brain and allows those trauma memories to get kind of stored in a part of the brain that, so to speak, isn't painful. It doesn't have that alive trauma memory attached to it. You can, so you know, now I can talk about my experience. I don't, I'm not having like these terrible flashbacks. It's kind of tidied up in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and that takes time to do that, but language is the mechanism that does that because it attaches the limbic emotional region to the higher order frontal cortex. So, you know, so I think it's a it's an interesting process of going, kind of going through the experience, feeling the feelings, but then with language, creating this coherent narrative and. You know, different people do it in different ways. Some people can't do that and find it easier to just push it away. Or as a colleague of mine says, put it in the too difficult box. <laughs> but then it kind of risks seeping out and that, and then getting triggered, you know, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, so people come out in different ways and recover in different ways. But for me, it was very much about digging in, understanding. I mean, that's, as you see, 28 years later, I'm still talking about the phenomena and that was the way I made meaning out of the experience. Um, you know, had I not been in the cult, I'm sure I wouldn't be talking about this. But I would have been doing something that was in some way related to words, because I was always a writer, and related to social justice, because I always cared about social justice. And I consider this certainly a social justice issue par excellence. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely it is. Thank you so much. Um, Reading your book has been a very organizing experience. And, you know, we talked earlier about the relief that comes when you, you just like surrender to the cognitive dissonance and let the cult uh, sort of take control and that dissociation can feel a relief. I have found a commensurate amount of relief or even more at the coherent narrative. And thank you so much for being so lucid and clear and transparent and honest in your writing, because it is then like seeing the matrix, you know, and everything touches <laughs> into place. It all just fits. And suddenly it, it, it is a flashbulb moment that metabolizes and organizes the internal sense of of uh, self that internal coherence is such a good feeling <laughs> so thank you so much for being on the show alexandra and thank you for your work i i have really appreciated and benefited and i'm so excited to share this message with everyone thanks for being here well you're very welcome and um thanks for uh taking the time to learn about what i've been doing i appreciate that too what a fascinating and brilliant woman. I was so honored to host Alexandra Stain for this conversation and totally stunned that she agreed. <laughs> to find out more about Alexandra's work, to find links to her books and to her website, check out the show notes under the podcast tab on my website, carmenspaniola.com. That's also where you'll learn more about the Numinous School of Intuition, 
just click on the courses link in the upper navigation. So yes, the Numinous School opens for registration on June 1st, but if you'd like a payment plan, you need to get on my email list in March because that's when payment plans begin. And people always email me worried about if they can get a space and if they can afford it. And often they're really surprised to learn that as of 2019, the year-long program is only $495 US. I know only is a relative term, but I mean, it definitely over delivers and is uh, underpriced. And I, I, it's not just me who thinks that. I'd be happy to set you up with um, current and former students who'd give you a referral if you're unsure. Um, yeah, it's a comprehensive year-long real-time program, live calls twice a month. It includes a printed textbook, among other little surprises. So if a payment plan is your jam, that is totally no problem and there's no extra charge or admin fee or anything like that. You just have to start your payment plan in March. So to do so, sign up for my newsletter so you'll be notified when payment plans begin. Thank you so much for listening. I know this episode was a lot to take in. So, you know, I hope right now you can feel your feet and feel your seat. And uh, if you need support, you go ahead and uh, contact Alexandra um, or just Google, you know, um, cult recovery. Um, so, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. I would like to specifically give a shout out today to my listeners in England, particularly the folks in Wolverhampton near Birmingham, where the late, great David Austin has his rose garden and nursery. I do hope to come visit you one day. So thank you to all the little dots I see on the listener map when I look at my stats from that central part of England. Finally, let's talk about Quest. Quest, because Ruben and I are leading Quest this year from June 24th to July 6th. It's a 12-day journey, and in the middle, you'll spend four days and nights fasting solo in the wilderness without a tent. Yeah, I know. But never fear, my friends. You will receive excellent training. You'll be both physically and spiritually safe. You'll emerge transformed and radiant as hell. So come gather with us and Elder Norman Ratasket of the Shoe Swap Nation, Rancher Charlie Coldwell, third-generation rancher, uh, on that century farm there and his beautiful herd of horses sit down with us for homemade suppers and fireside chats we'll sing you some old gallic songs maybe ruben will sing some of his sea shanties about the moon and the night and finding our way back to feeling a little more connected and a little more at home in this life so make it easy on yourself and start your payment plan now now if this isn't your year for quest but you'd like a taste of the experience for just a fraction of the time and the expense, this year we're doing a special event. I don't know if we'll ever do it again, but it's, um, yeah, you might consider joining us for Vestalia, a women's summer solstice celebration. You actually don't have to be a woman. Just know that it's for women. Um, and however you identify is fine. It's about uh, honoring the the notion of women's power it's happening at our quest location in the caribou chilcotin region of uh, bc sort of about 40 50 kilometers west of clinton and that's june 20 uh june 20 to 23rd so there you will also still get to meet elder norman and we'll be feasting and storytelling and singing and crafting and cooking and you'll have a chance to do a mini solo ritual as you take your turn tending the sacred fire on your own sometime in the middle of the night 
while the others sleep. It's just you and the fire and the stars and the coyotes to keep the flames alive until our sunrise solstice ceremony on the hill facing the mountains. To get all the details about Vestalia and Quest, just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs>